welcome to Addicted to Murder. I'm Courtney. I'm Trisha. And this is Ted Bundy Part 1 Remastered. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. So, um, yes. So I finally convinced Courtney that we needed to redo this first episode of Addicted to Murder because it's sort of the first intro most people have to us and it wasn't very good. And I don't mean like it wasn't very good, like the content wasn't good because I feel like the content was good and we're going to pretty much redo the same thing. It was the sound quality and the mic touching and the volume levels and the dog in the background and the high vaulted ceilings that made it not great. Right. We've learned a lot about how to make our sound quality better since then. Right. So, um, you know, as I said, we're going to redo this one. We're not going to redo the rest of them. This one was just especially bad. And for those of you who are listening to us the first time, we want you to actually come back and listen to us some more. So <laughs> please. Yes. And then if you guys have been listeners in the past, I really hope you enjoy relearning about Ted Bundy because he was very um, important to Courtney and I when deciding to do this. This was like the first one we agreed to do. Um, he's obviously a very... I don't want to say influential serial killer, but famous. Infamous. Yeah. You could be the most prolific. As they all say. But they all are. Right. Um, so anyways, yeah. Welcome again or welcome for the first time. And I hope you enjoy part one of Ted Bundy. And uh, Courtney, anything you want to say before I start us on this adventure again? Well, um, for you know, those of you who are tuning in for the very first time to hear us, I think it would be good to kind of go over... Our credentials and things like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> Why don't you go first? <laughs> so um, I have a master's degree in mental health counseling, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in the state of Oregon, where we are. Um, and I've been working for um, over 10 years as a therapist, specializing mostly in working with um, children, adolescents, and their families. Um, I'm going to try not to say um. <laughs> That's something we still struggle with to this day, so bear with us. I am a, well, I've worked in the medical field a lot. I've been a medical assistant. I've worked in, um, darn it, I've worked in cardiac or EKG departments in the hospital. I've worked in the sleep lab in the hospital. I've worked in the insurance field doing medical credentialing. And most currently, I work um, in a clinic setting as a coordinator, an office coordinator that deals with primarily youth, mental health, or physical health. So, and I am a QMHA until that lapses, which is a qualified mental health associate in the state of Oregon. And I have, or I did have a CMA, which I need to renew. So, which I can do. I just need to, to put in the, the education hours. But yeah, so I've been around the medical field for a long time. Right. Okay. And so, Trisha, what is it about serial killers that has always been interesting to you? You know, it's it's not the gruesome nature of their crimes. That is not – that's the farthest from my interest. I tend to be very squeamish when I watch things on TV or read about them or listen to them on other podcasts regarding, like, the heinous nature of the crimes. That's not my jam. Uh, I have just always been fascinated by how they can do what they do. And what made them that way? Because obviously they think differently than me. 
So there's that. Right. How about you? I'd say it's something kind of similar to that, um, but also from that sort of psychological background um, and therapist background, I always wonder, you know, what happened to these people when they were growing up that made them who they are? And potentially, was there anything that could have been done to prevent them from becoming killers? Right. And, you know, not 100% of the time, but I'd say most of the time, there was something that happened to them as a child that sent them on their path. Yeah. So that is sort of like what Courtney and I aim to look at in our uh, discussions on serial killers is we do outline the crimes that they committed. Sometimes we go into a little bit of detail about the heinousness of the crimes, but that's not where we dwell. Um, We like to really get into what it was that made them do what they did. Right. To the best of our ability. You know, this is speculation. This isn't like armchair diagnosing. Right. We are purely making guesses. Right. However, Courtney's expertise, I feel it puts some validity on what we are surmising. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Because you you do have that mental health background and you do deal with patients that have some of this, this these disorders that we discuss. That is true. So, anyhow, um, we ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, yeah, we chose to do our first podcast on Ted because a lot of times in American society, at least, he's one of the first names to pop up when you think of prolific serial killers. He was very crafty. He was smart. And, you know, he was bold. And he apparently was pretty good looking, most females would say or did say. I don't say most a lot of females thought he was fairly good looking, and I, I could see it. He was handsome. Yeah, like 1970s handsome. Right, totally. So let's dive into his childhood. So Theodore Robert Cowell, or Cowell was born in Burlington, Vermont on November 24th, 1946. His name would not change to Bundy until a little later in his life. So he was born out of wedlock to at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers. And that was to Eleanor Louise Cowell. This was a place that a woman would go when she needed to have a secret birth, most likely because having a child at home would bring shame to the family. For two months, he remained at the home without his mother as the family debated on whether to place the baby for adoption or to keep the baby. Ted's father to this day has still not been determined. There are rumors that his father was an Air Force vet by the name of Jack Worthington or even possibly the result of father-daughter incest by his own grandfather, Samuel. But to avoid unwanted scandal, little Ted was eventually brought home with um, you know, his family, but he was brought home thinking that his grandparents were actually his biological mother and father. Most fa- uh, friends and family members thought that Eleanor, who was his mother, was actually... Or, who was actually his mother, they thought that Eleanor was his sister. So, Courtney, do you think that was a common thing back then? We've seen this sometimes at work, that a client may believe that their grandparent or aunt is really their mom. In your experience, is this typically a bad idea? I imagine that it was probably more common back then than it is today, just because, you know, the stigma against single mothers and, like, unwed mothers has lessened significantly since the 1940s. Um, and, you know, it's hard to make a general judgment about being this being, like, a bad or a good idea. But 
I have seen that it can make things far more complicated than necessary. Kind of everybody involved in, you know, this child's life needs to know the story, Mm -hmm. essentially, and be able to keep to it. Um, And so the problem I've seen usually arises if a child finds out the truth about who their parents are from a source that's not their immediate family, as this can often feel like a huge betrayal of trust. It seems like, you know, perhaps when they're young and they're like really young and they're trying to, you know, develop those attachments, I can see it being more of a okay thing to do. But when they get to the point where they are able to kind of um, understand maybe the situation that that brought them to where they're at, then maybe that would be a good time to like have that that honest conversation with them. I don't know. I mean, kind of like Santa Claus, you know, it's okay to lie to your kids when they're little and then eventually you come clean. Right. And it's kind of similar to with telling kids that they're adopted or not. Sure. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's going to be better received typically um, and more more able to kind of work through any difficult feelings about it kind of the earlier you're able to explain it compared to say finding out when you turn 18 that Mm -hmm. you're adopted okay so it's been said that his grandmother ted's grandmother was depressed and also suffered from agoraphobia courtney can you explain to us the basics of agoraphobia Yes. So agoraphobia is an anxiety disorder in which a person has an irrational fear of entering open or crowded spaces where feelings of panic, embarrassment, or feeling helpless may occur. Um, And so this anxiety often leads to pretty severe avoidance behaviors, including things like refusing to go into public, refusing to leave the house, or staying within what they consider like a safe perimeter. It's very limiting. It's very limiting, yeah. There are also rumors that Ted was subjected to abuse by his grandfather. Reports are that his grandfather had a vicious temper. This extended to not just his family, but co-workers and even like neighborhood dogs and cats. In an article by Vanity Fair, it was reported reported that Grandpa Sam would kick dogs until they howled and swing cats by their tails if they wandered near his gardens. Sam was very attached to his gardens and got really mad if any creature, you know, was in them at all. Some sources also claim that Samuel did indeed beat his wife in front of the children and Ted, who was actually his grandchild, and that his children did fear him. Courtney, when a child is subject to abuse or sees the abuse occurring, what starts to happen in their minds? There are a number of different things that can start to happen. If little Ted is observing the people around him being abused, particularly the women in his life being abused by his grandfather, who was the main man in his life, two potential things are happening. The first is that children begin to live in a kind of constant state of fear where the stress hormone cortisol is consistently elevated. And this can train the brain to sort of always be on the lookout for danger. And that then teaches young children to be afraid of the world and also to be afraid of the adult in his life because he could not trust them to be safe. Um, And then it also is a model. So parents often model how people are supposed to behave for their kids. And in this case, his grandpa Sam would be modeling how men 
are supposed to treat others in the world, particularly women, um, and how to treat women, children, and animals. Well, and obviously he's failing. Right, because he is teaching (laughs) little Ted to be violent. Yeah, to animals, women, and children. Like, to all of the things. Yes. Grandpa Sam was said to hide pornography in his greenhouse, where Ted and his cousins would view it often when they were very young. Ted being maybe only three three years old at the time. Ted later, later says in a jailhouse interview that, quote, I have lived in prison for a long time now. And I've met a lot of men who were motivated to commit violence, just like me. And without exception, every one of them was deeply involved in pornography, without question, without exception. End quote. It sounds like Ted is claiming that pornography had a huge and negative impact on his life. Courtney, can you tell us how viewing pornography and viewing it often at such a young age can shape a person's perception on sex and on women? First of all, When a child is very young, their brain is not developed enough to process sexual information in the same way that an adult would. So what little Ted may have seen or heard would have been, first, like very novel, new, and exciting. And children are naturally drawn to new things. And of course, it gets even more interesting when it's secret or forbidden. You have to hide it that you're doing it. And you know, I would guess that At some point, he also learned the connection between pornography and sexual gratification. It is normal for a child to be curious and explore their body, including their genitals, and experience self-gratification, and that self-gratification feels good. Um, And so this can also include thoughts about uh, how biological boys and girls are different, how the different parts work together, and eventually what sex is using those parts. But if Ted's first exposure to sexuality was in the form of very violent pornography, then he would start to connect things like beauty, women, and sex with violence, even from a young age. So Ted's view on sex is being shaped by violent pornography at a young age, and he is seeing his dad slash grandpa beat his wife and, you know, who knows what else. So all of this is being normalized to him as to how things must really be. Right, exactly. Ted Ted's Aunt Julia, who he um, thought was his sister, right, recalls a time when Ted was just a toddler and woke her up by placing three butcher knives by her in bed in a threatening manner while she was sleeping. Little, tiny, probably cute as a button Ted, retrieved knives from the kitchen, who knows how, and surrounded his sister with them. Courtney, in your clinical experience, have you had a patient that you can recall that did anything like this? What is going on that a young child would do something like this to a family member at such a young age? Well, this is a two-part question, I feel. So the first part um, to answer your question is that, yes, I have had the opportunity to work with a few different children and their families around these issues, including young children being found holding a knife um, by their parents' bed in the middle of the night, and also young children attempting to smother their infant sibling shortly after the baby came home from the hospital. Um, And so one thing that 
these clients have all had in common, the ones who were kind of violent in this way, is that they had a diagnosis of what is called reactive attachment disorder. And so reactive attachment disorder is a trauma disorder that's caused by some sort of early developmental trauma, usually prior to age three, but not always. Um, And that can include neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and witnessing violence as well. And so what happens in reactive attachment disorder, or RAD, is that there is some traumatic event in which a child does not have their needs met, and their ability to trust in a caregiver is basically shut down. For Ted, if we go all the way back to the beginning, the first experience of neglect he had when his mother left him at the orphanage, that's sort of where the pattern starts emerging. Because when a child is born, those first 24 months or so are essential for mother and baby bonding and attachment. This is when children learn to trust that somebody will take care of them, that if they reach out or cry, that their needs will be met. And so being abandoned by his mother for those first two months, even though he would not consciously remember that, started to change his brain in a permanent kind of way. He couldn't trust anyone around him to take care of him, so in response, he learned how to do whatever it takes to be in control of getting his needs met. So what you're, you're kind of saying is by Ted putting these knives around his sister's bed, um, it was an attempt at control? Kind of, yeah. Um, for children with RAD... It literally feels to them that if someone were to love them enough for the child to love them back and let their guard down, that they would literally die. Um, You know, and how it works with attachment disorders, you know, kids can become very manipulative, put on an artificial charm and cuteness. They might lie compulsively. They might tell one person something and another person something different. Um... And they learn, essentially, how to make people give them what they want and need because they can't necessarily trust that everybody will. So they feel like they have to be the ones to make that happen. And so along with that, there's also this deep-seated rage that they experience really towards everyone, but particularly towards caregiving or people in caregiving roles like parents and adoptive parents, things like that. Um, and that rage is because, you know, they might not feel safe. They might not feel wanted. And as part of this defense mechanism of becoming angry and very self-focused, it's a defense mechanism. And children with RAD don't necessarily grow a conscience in the same way as other children normally would. Not to say that they don't have a conscience. Um, it just develops a little bit differently. And because of this, they may act in violent or unpredictable ways as a way of expressing this rage while also trying to keep people at bay so they can't love too much. So in the, in the instance where he did this to his sister, do you think she did something earlier in the day or something that made him especially angry and he acted upon it? Or do you think that these things like that just happen regularly? doesn't really matter if there was a trigger. My guess, um, it could be that she did something that made him angry, or it could be that 
you know, he had this sense or feeling that in some way she was taking some of the attention, mm. care, resources okay. that he needed. Mm-hmm. From, so, the, from the uh, the other caregivers? Or right. The main caregivers? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, um, there's this really great book that I've, I've read about R.A.D. It's called When Love is Not Enough. And there's a quote from a child um, that was diagnosed with R.A.D., but who eventually went on to have therapy treatment and learn to have healthy relationships again. Um, but this is the way that she described her experiences. Quote, To every other person, I was a charming, adorable child with big blue eyes. How could this child be disturbed? She's just a little girl. Yeah, a little girl with a solid rock for a heart. Just a little girl with rage smoking from my ears. But no, she can't be. She's so sweet when she's with us. She's fine. Oh yeah, I'm just fine because you are too blind to see what I can do to you. Oh yes, I'm so shy and angelic. What could ever be wrong at home? That's because you don't know how powerful I am. Look what I've done to you. I've made you feel sorry for me and want to shower me with affection. Oh, I am so smart. Now, you don't start to love me or you too will know the power of my wrath. You too will know what I hide so well from the outside world. If you love me, I will die. End quote. So with a kid with RAD... They feel that if somebody, a caregiver most likely, loves them enough that they also want to love them back, that that love will kill them. So they do what they can to prevent themselves from loving the caregiver and they act out to keep that caregiver at arm's length in a yes. way. Yeah. Like they're... Ted is doing some of the things that he is doing because he doesn't want that caregiver or family member or whatever to really love him because that would make him vulnerable and um, love equals death. Essentially, yeah. Okay. And of course, this is all at an unconscious level. Right. Like they're not rationalizing any of this at that age. Right, yeah. you got to think about being a three-year-old and how it's very probably black and white in some ways. This equals that equals this equals that. So if I do this, then this won't equal that. Right. So, so it sounds really, really sad for a child that young to be doing that kind of um, scary stuff to keep people at bay. It is so sad. So that they can feel safe. It is sad. And it does really make you wonder what's going on in that home to make that child feel like they need to do that to protect themselves. Definitely. So I imagine that most, if not all, children with RAD have been suffering some sort of abuse or neglect. 100%, yes. Okay. Often RAD shows up um, and is identified when like they've been removed from whatever their original gotcha. home was. DHS interferes or something and they start right. getting counseling. Foster care, adoption, a lot of that. Okay. At age three, Ted and his mom slash sister moved to Tacoma and changed his last name to Nelson. Eventually, Eleanor met and married Johnny Bundy. Ted did not care for, but that's obviously when he got his Bundy last name. 
Ted did not care for his stepfather. He would throw fits, vying for Eleanor's attention, deliberately wetting his pants, and having tantrums in public. It also seems as though Bundy was, or thought he was, intellectually superior to his stepfather and would taunt him, which would cause, you know, even more chaos in the house. Courtney, real quick, why would a child intentionally wet his pants? Or rather, what are a few reasons why? And what do you think Ted's motivations was? At this point, I believe he still thought Eleanor was his sister. So unless there's a physical problem, you know, causing lack of control over urination, the most common reason a child might intentionally wet themselves is in a maladaptive way of getting attention or getting their needs met. So Ted could have been displaying this behavior as an attempt to get Eleanor's attention and care. You know, oh, if I'm having these problems, then she'll have to spend more time with me, pay attention to me, help me clean up, that kind of thing. Um... Or it could have been an attempt to scare away his new stepfather by acting, you know, bad and unmanageable so that, you know, he would not want to stick around anymore if Ted was going to be like this forever. Um, And it also could have been sort of less of an intentional manipulation like that, but could also have been just sort of part of Ted not knowing how to express his anger and upset emotions in a better way. From from what I'm understanding, it's not like he had a bedwetting problem his whole life. It was like this started when she married Johnny. Right. So, so it's clearly a reaction to his presence. Yeah. So he must have felt really, th- I'm thinking he must have just felt really threatened um, that Johnny would take away Eleanor, who he must, even though he thinks as his sister, must uh, see as his main parental figure. Right, she's the one taking care mm -hmm. of him at that time. Yeah. Bundy did not discover his true parentage until he was a young teenager and found his birth certificate in an old trunk or another, or, so that's one way it could have been, but another claim by author Anne Rule, who, by the way, the book that we primarily used to study this um, case was Anne Rule's A Stranger Beside Me. Amazing. Anything by Anne Rule is amazing, my opinion. Agreed. So check that book out if you haven't read it. It's a really, it's kind of a big book, but it's a quick read because she's so good at writing. Anyhow, so yeah, it could have been that he found his birth certificate or um, a longtime former friend of Bundy's um, said that he discovered it on his own somehow back in 1969. And there's also a rumor that a cousin knew about his mom's true identity and made fun of him for being born out of wedlock. Not quite sure. Can't ask him now. However it was found, it did confirm that his sister was his mom. He was humiliated that he didn't have a father named on his birth certificate, and he definitely thought of himself as a bastard, and this will plague him for the rest of his life. Courtney, already we have something going on that would make any normal you know, person be shaken. Can you explain some things potentially happening to an adolescent who just discovered he was lied to his whole life? And it's a big lie. You said it already that a normal person under normal circumstances would be shaken by finding out that they don't have a known father and that everyone they were supposed to be able to trust lied about it their whole life. So on the one hand, there's that feeling of identity that comes with knowing where you come from, knowing who your parents are. And it's very commonly seen in adoptive children who, you know, they might have the greatest adoptive parents ever. 
um, but there's still this longing and need to know who their biological family is to figure out who they are. And so Ted, who already had such a weird family life, not knowing if he can trust the adults in his life, and throw the attachment disorder where he couldn't trust his family to care for him already. So for him, finding out that everyone has been lying to him would really have just proven that all of his fears about his family were true. And then on top of that, if we look at the primary relationship between Ted and his mom, that is where the original attachment injury occurred when she left him at the maternity home. And that feeling of rage that goes along with reactive attachment disorder could very easily then become fixated on his mother or transferred to women in general. I think it's safe to assume that by the time Ted was a young teenager, he was pretty angry, confused, mm-hmm. uh, mixed up person going into puberty. Oh, absolutely. So we will see in our next episodes that high school wasn't necessarily easy for Ted <laughs> right? because of all of his conflicts and um, how he did not learn at the age he should have about how to um, regulate his emotions. Right, yeah. You tend to see the long-lasting effects of attachment disorders more and more as a person grows up and is having more and more complex relationships with the people around them. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're going to pretty much end for the day. Do you have any closing thoughts, Courtney? Um, I've got a couple. The first one is kind of still focusing on that relationship with his mother and and looking at how it interacts with reactive attachment. My guess would be is that there were a lot of things that Ted did that his mom was never able to be honest about or own up to. You know, because someone with RED doesn't just like have one time where he threatens someone with a knife or one time that they harm an animal, or one time that they have a big tantrum in public. These things happen over and over and over again. So these portraits painted by, you know, Ted himself and that his mother laid out kind of later when we get into, like, the trial and the publicity around it, um, they try and make it seem like this was sort of an idyllic childhood where just everything got along, everyone got along. There were no problems between Ted and his mother. Um, but really, I think these were just a cover-up of some very disturbing and mentally ill behaviors that Ted has a ch- had as a child. Yeah, it, w- I mean, we're getting a picture painted of a definitely dysfunctional childhood with abuse from grandpa, um, a lot of deception, a lot of uh, trust issues, and a lot of rage. So... Whether I, you know, I'm sure his mom didn't go into it being like, I'm going to pretend to be his sister because I want to hurt him down the line. That was just the circumstances that he was born into. And I think that they tried to do the best they could in a way. But with how dysfunctional that family already was running, it just manifested into a reactive attachment (laughs) child who goes on to do horrible things. Right. Yeah, and if we even think about, you know, what Eleanor's life must mm-hmm. have been growing up, you know, 
her family, as dysfunctional as it was, was a very prominent family back in Virginia. Um, And so if she was experiencing abuse from her father, which I think it's safe to assume she was, Mm -hmm. um, she probably also learned from an early age that that's something you don't talk about. That's something that you hide from others at all costs Mm -hmm. because the family reputation is the most important thing. And there was probably fear if father was, you know, the fact that there was a rumor that he might be Ted's father, you know, father-daughter incest, there was probably a lot of fear for Eleanor to make a fuss that goes along with that grooming. So, But again, we're not going to know because these people have passed on. Right. And they wouldn't have told us the truth anyways. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. Well, that is it for Ted Bundy Part 1 Remastered. Um, I hope that you guys tune in for Part 2, Part 3, Part 4, and all the way up to, I don't know, where we're at now, 65, 66. But, uh, Something like that. Possibly yeah. even higher. Yeah. So I really hope you guys enjoyed it. Please listen, like, subscribe. Um, our email is addicted to murder podcast at gmail.com our instagram is addicted to m podcast and all other social media is addicted to murder podcast yes that's so correct we enjoy getting questions and um probably the the quickest way to get an, a response from us is through our instagram chat right so but we love messages on all platforms emails questions all, all of things. the above yep All right. Well, thanks for listening and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.